I hear this phrase in a lot of ways. We need to tell the consumer more about what we're doing. We need to educate the consumer. We need to tell our story, but it's it's one direction. So just like with me as an extension specialist, I don't think my job is just to pass information one direction. I think it needs to be a two-way dialogue. The same is probably true when it comes to engaging with consumers, where they don't just want to be educated and, and hear all the minutia and all the details about our management practices. They just want to know that farmers share their values and that farmers truly care about their animals. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. Excellent by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. And AB Vista. Welcome back to another episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. Uh, I'm your host today, Barry Bradford, and I'm really pleased today to have the chance to talk with Dr. Jennifer Van Oss. Uh, Dr. Van Oss is an assistant professor and extension specialist in animal welfare on the faculty of the Department of Animal and Dairy Sciences at the University of Madison, excuse me, University of Wisconsin in Madison. Her work focuses on understanding, evaluating, and improving the welfare of dairy animals from both a biological science and a social science perspective. Dr. Van Oss, thank you so much for taking the time to be on today. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. So I'd love to talk a little bit about um, where you started in your life. How did you end up finding your way into uh, dairy management, dairy welfare type of work? I'll try to keep it brief, but I had sort of a long and winding road. I did not grow up with an ag background. I'm not from a farm. I am from an agricultural region. So I grew up in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, where the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign is located. My parents were professors there, but in geology. But that was also a land-grant university, just like University of Wisconsin. So ag is very important to that campus. And they had open houses when I was growing up. So I got to do the cannulated cow experience and my Girl Scout troop visited the campus dairy, but I did not have any formal education in ag, even through my undergrad. So for my undergrad, I went to Harvard University and majored in psychology. And again, a lot of research experience there. I wrote an undergraduate honors thesis that was later published, but my work then was on memory and aging. And one of the important things I learned as an undergrad was what kind of scientist I am. So I had a really great experience working with a neurologist who worked with Alzheimer's patients, and I did some human subjects research. But I realized that for me, basic science is not my calling. I think it's extremely important, but it it showed me that applied research is what I'm more interested in. So I decided to take a breather and not go to grad school in psychology. Having parents who were professors, I understood it's a huge commitment to pursue a PhD and I didn't want to take that lightly. So I moved to Los Angeles and I worked in industry for six years in two different jobs, not related to science, not related to agriculture, 
but I became a grocery store consumer for the first time living on my own. And I wanted to be a conscientious consumer and understand how to make purchasing decisions that were aligned with values around sustainability. And I didn't have very good sources of information. So back then, this was the early 2000s. And I watched some documentaries, checked out some books from the library, joined some community groups. But I didn't really understand the science behind sustainability, and I had never even heard of animal welfare. And then a few things happened kind of by chance, and one of those was that in 2008, it was an election year, and California is one of the states in the U.S. that has what's called ballot propositions, where in addition to laws that are passed through the legislature by lawmakers, voters have the opportunity to weigh in directly on potential laws. So there was one called Proposition 2, and it was about farm animal housing. So it was about housing requirements for egg-laying hens, gestating sows, and veal calves. And it was presented by the proponents as something very common sense that you know no reasonable person would feel good about animal cruelty, so therefore you should vote to enact tighter regulations. But it got me curious, why do we need laws? Why are farm animals supposedly not treated correctly to begin with? And is this something where I could apply my research skills to try to solve questions around what I learned was called animal welfare. So I got into graduate school at UC Davis, University of California, Davis, to work with Dr. Cassandra Tucker. And that was actually the first time I took formal agriculture courses. So I basically did a second bachelor's as I was earning my PhD. And that was extremely eye-opening. I realized that the issues were much more nuanced. And I also learned about the progress that the dairy industry has made over the past few decades. And uh, it really illustrated to me that some of the conversations that happen in the popular press or in documentaries are very one-sided and don't capture the nuances or the scientific evidence. So that was how I ended up working with dairy cattle. I just got lucky. I would have been happy to work on any farmed species, including chickens, but dairy cattle are wonderful to work with. They're very curious and yeah, it's, it's fun. I, I feel very fortunate. So I ended up here at University of Wisconsin in 2018 after a couple of short postdocs and it's really a dream job. That's fantastic. So this is kind of an aside, but I'm just curious, you know, you went through Harvard for your undergrad, very different type of environment, I assume, um, than the land grants that you, you know, have worked in since then. Are there any big things that, you know, you take away from that comparison, especially when you interact with students? It is a different type of environment. It's much smaller. So each class that enters has fewer students. And I think that what it has in common is that they do emphasize breadth. Even at a university like Wisconsin, people are expected to have a core curriculum that's not just in their area of focus. So if you're in the sciences, you should get some background in the humanities. But I also felt that there were good sides and bad sides where it was a very intense environment, which is great because then you feel competitive and you want to do your best, but it was also extremely stressful. It was a lot of self-imposed pressure. There were a wealth of opportunities, but it also meant that I was stretched too thin. I was trying too many things. I had paid jobs, volunteer opportunities, internships, choirs that I was singing in and coursework, of course. And I think that uh, at a state school, you can also get a really good education. So my younger brother went to University of Illinois. He went to MIT for his grad school. So he kind of got both sides of that experience. And I don't regret that opportunity whatsoever, but uh, I didn't get a lot of rest. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of fear of missing out issues there, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you. All right. So I want to dive in a little bit to 
the area you're working in today. And you, you brought up the Prop 2 is, is kind of sort of a path that led you into where you're working now. So that ties in with a question. Like, what is the difference between animal welfare, as maybe we think about it, and what a lot of people in society might call animal rights? I'm really glad you asked that because there's a lot of confusion around those two terms. And sometimes people use them interchangeably when really there's very little area of overlap. And I had never heard the word animal welfare. I think it's become a little bit more prominent in the year since I started my career. So I went to grad school in 2010. And that same year, HBO made a movie about Dr. Temple Grandin from Colorado State University. It was about her life. It starred Claire Danes. They won an Oscar. Dr. Grandin went to the Academy Awards. So I, I think she She's the most prominent animal welfare scientist in the world, so more people have heard of it. But even in the industry, sometimes people shy away from the term animal animal welfare because there's confusion. And so in the U.S., a lot of people prefer the term animal well-being, but I say animal welfare because that's what our global scientific community calls it. And so I think it's really important to stay grounded in science, whereas animal rights is an ethical term. So when we talk about the humanities, there's a whole field of philosophy and ethics, and that's where it comes from. So it refers to a philosophical or ethical stance that certain people have where they believe that animals have rights that are akin to human rights. So we don't have the right to do anything to animals that would violate their personal individual interests, if you hold this view. So things like doing experiments on animals or farming them or keeping them for entertainment. And even some people think you shouldn't keep animals as pets because that violates their own self-interest. So animal rights... Uh, people who hold this view, a lot of them want animal farming to end. So they think that there is no way for farming to be done ethically because humans are controlling the animals and that this violates their intrinsic rights. And therefore, their goal is to end animal agriculture. And I think there can be a lot of confusion in the public realm because sometimes the tactics that animal rights organizations use is to raise awareness about animal welfare issues. So I'll explain that in a second. And because of that, sometimes news organizations call them animal welfare groups, which is inaccurate. And even these organizations would say they would want to correct the record and say, no, we're not an animal welfare organization. We're an animal rights organization. So they highlight welfare problems, but to them, they aren't solvable. So they're trying to highlight it to illustrate that, say, the dairy industry or any other livestock industry is inherently cruel and is sacrificing the animal's needs in favor of human interests. So the interests are, are different. Whereas with animal welfare, that captures something that's inherent to the animal, which is their quality of life. So it can be a snapshot in time, or it can talk about their cumulative lifetime quality of life, but it refers to their status. So the word welfare means how well is this animal faring? Is it faring well? Is it faring poorly? So it's about assessing that animal's experience. Um, and so as a welfare scientist, my job is to try to give the animal a voice through science. That's the motto in my lab, giving cows a voice through science, so that we can understand their perspective and understand using scientific techniques, what do we need to provide them in their managed environments to make sure that they have good welfare rather than poor welfare. So if we're thinking about a philosophical perspective, it tends to be more utilitarian. So after we do the science to understand what leads to poor welfare outcomes, what leads to good welfare outcomes, we want to promote those 
benefits and minimize costs. So it's about minimizing harms and increasing benefits to the animal. And I think it's a little bit more pragmatic. And that's not to say that people who hold a rights view are wrong, because this is about people's morals and, and ethical frameworks. I can't tell somebody else that they're their morals are wrong, only that there's different perspectives. But you can see how these things are actually incompatible because as a welfare scientist, I'm trying to make the experience for the animals better. But people who believe in animal rights think that then we're perpetuating the suffering because we're improving that managed environment and allowing animals to remain in this farmed setting. So I think, again, in these news articles where they call them welfare organizations, that those organizations would want to correct the journalists too. Thank you. That's, that helps a lot with the clarity of it. So one thing you really emphasize, uh, which makes sense, is animal welfare is something you can study as a science. Can you explain that a little bit, put a little meat on those bones, if you will? Yeah, and so there are several different frameworks out there. There's a couple that I kind of waffle between, depending on what, what audience I'm working with. But when we talk about welfare, it is important to recognize that it's a holistic perspective about the animal's quality of life. So traditionally in the animal scientist animal sciences or in veterinary science, we're really concerned with what's called the animal's biological functioning. So we measure aspects of the animal's health. So is a cow, for example, free of disease, free of injury? And also, is she functioning well in terms of her fitness? So is she reproducing? Is her milk production good? Or in the case of young stock, is their growth good? So we're measuring production and physiological parameters to get at their biological functioning. And this is, of course, important, but it's not complete. So when we talk about an animal's quality of life, it really comes down to their subjective experience. And a lot of different papers have validated that many farm species, especially cattle, are capable of experiencing emotions. And there I always like to pause and clarify, we're not anthropomorphizing. In fact, quite the opposite. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. So anthropomorphizing means that we're projecting our human experiences onto the animal and relating them to humans. And that's not what we're doing. And so we're not saying things like, oh, this cow is jealous of the other. <laughs> we're, we're acknowledging that they can feel negative states like pain and fear and stress, which we need to minimize. And those things have production implications, but they also have ethical implications. We don't anim want animals to suffer. But on the flip side, cows can experience positive feelings like contentment or uh, enjoyment of things that are rewarding to them. So I think that when we put it in simple terms like that, reasonable people recognize, yes, cows can have positive and negative emotions. So one of the things that affects how a cow feels or the quality of her life is, of course, her health and her physical fitness, but also her ability to do species-specific and life-stage-appropriate behaviors. So this is what I mean. We're not anthropomorphizing. We're recognizing that different species have different evolutionary histories, different natural histories, and we need to recognize that and study that as the basis of the research we can do to inform how we manage cows in confinement, for example. So the needs of a cow are very different than the needs of a dog or the needs of a chicken, because we need to study each species and not just anthropomorphize and say what humans think are important. And so for these reasons, animal welfare is very multidisciplinary. So my training is in animal behavior, and that's where I seek to use techniques to understand what kind of opportunities do cattle need across different life stages to be able to address these important behaviors in managed settings. But then I collaborate with physiologists and 
veterinarians and people who are trained in these other areas to affect these other aspects of welfare that are important. And um, in terms of being multidisciplinary, I think this is also where we need to, we do need to collaborate with ethicists and social scientists to understand the human side of the equation, because on the farm, no decision is made in a vacuum. So even though we can weigh the costs and benefits of different management practices on the animals, it's often an ethical or an economic or a pragmatic decision. So it's, it's very multidisciplinary. Let's dig into that a little bit. So you mentioned how, you know, nothing can be, you know, in the real world, when we're, we're raising animals as part of a business, we can't just look at that in isolation. So how do you think we should work as an industry to sort of uh, maintain consumer confidence, to adapt to changing desires of consumers? That is a tough question that we don't have easy answers to, <laughs> but I, I do have a few thoughts, and I'm glad that you're bringing up that you know consumer expectations are changing, and we need to remember that dairy farming is a business and that we're not entitled to a customer base. So when we go to the grocery store or to restaurants, we as consumers have a lot of choices now, a lot of options that are affordable and tasty and nutritious, and people can decide not to consume dairy products because there are alternatives. So how do we maintain their trust? And societal expectations and interest in animal welfare have been dramatically evolving. I think my own story of how I came into this field is just one example, and a lot of people go in different directions. But as a millennial consumer, making my own purchasing decisions, I wanted to make sure that I was acting conscientiously with my wallet. And another thing to realize is that people have power not just as consumers, so they don't just vote with their wallet, they vote literally. So California is one example, but there are other states with these ballot propositions. And so when I'm teaching in intro animal science courses, I tell students about this example that really illustrates the societal change. So in 1988 in Massachusetts, there was a ballot proposition. And in this case, it was about egg laying hens and gestating sows. And at that time, nearly three quarters of voters voted no. So the proposition did not pass. But then 30 years later in 2016, a similar proposition came on the ballot in the same state, Massachusetts, and over three quarters of people voted yes. So the perspective had done a complete 180, completely switched. So instead of the majority of people saying we don't need to regulate farm animal housing, now the majority, vast majority of people said, yes, we do. And so I think this just really illustrates this societal shift that can happen even with people who never intend to consume dairy. These are voters, right? And many of them do. And then they go to the grocery store and they need to make these decisions. And there are many factors that play into these decisions of will they consume this product? Will, will they not? There's price, <laughs> food safety, taste, convenience, other social issues. But animal welfare is a big one. And uh, I, I don't, again, I don't have the answers, but this is why it's really important to collaborate with social scientists. And I've kind of become an accidental social scientist because I've realized that even though my lab's mission is to give cows a voice through science, we also need to make sure that these different human stakeholders have a voice. Because if we decide in a vacuum that, okay, on the balance, this practice is better for animal welfare, this practice is poorer, that practice either is not affordable or feasible on farm or might not be okay with consumers. Even if we have research showing that it's good for the animal, there are these different ethical viewpoints that people have where they just might not be comfortable with it because of their personal values or their personal perception. So we really need to partner with social science scientists. And in terms of how does the industry maintain consumer trust, I think 
that's a really tough one because people have different values. And with the industry, not every farm, I don't think it's the responsibility of every single farm to engage directly with consumers. But one of the things I think is really important to do is to demonstrate that you are adhering to minimum standards for welfare, that we as an industry believe there are certain practices that should not be allowed or should no longer be allowed as we gain a better understanding around welfare. So the comparison I like to make is that in the last 50 years, we've made leaps and bounds when it comes to dairy genetics dairy nutrition, our knowledge around housing and management practices that have allowed us to become exponentially more productive. But the same thing has happened with animal welfare science. So we have learned so much more about what different housing factors, management factors, animal handling lead to poor welfare outcomes or good welfare outcomes. So the practices that we used last century aren't necessarily the same practices we should use today. And I think there can be a lot of resistance because people have a lot of traditions. And there's also this, what we call cognitive dissonance, where they don't want to think my grandfather did things to cows that cause poor welfare. And so they, to rationalize to themselves, they say, well, my grandfather wasn't cruel. And so therefore these practices aren't cruel. But I think you don't have to be deliberately mean-spirited or cruel to have done those practices. It's just that we didn't know better then. We do know better now, just like with nutrition and genetics. So one of the things in the U.S. that's really important is we have a program called FARM, which stands for Farmers Assuring Responsible Management. And their animal care program was the flagship. Now they have modules about environmental stewardship and workforce development. But animal care essentially sets the minimum bar for the entire industry. And again, it's this balancing act where it's informed by science, but there's also pragmatic decisions involved. But it's a way of the industry demonstrating to customers, so the companies in the supply chain that are purchasing the milk from the farms that then turns it into the products that goes on the shelves or on the tables that reflect these changing societal expectations. And so customers, I don't want to name any specific companies, want to know that the animals in their supply chain are being treated humanely or appropriately. And so by participating in the farm program, dairies can demonstrate that they are holding themselves to a high standard that continues to get higher because we should be aspiring to do what we learn is best for the animals. That's really the goal of my extension program is to bring this knowledge from the scientific literature to producers directly, but also to these companies in the supply chain and these organizations like farm so that we can make sure these expectations are based on science. So it's, it's complicated, (laughs) but basically we, we can't ignore the fact that societal expectations are shifting and that that's something very important to be aware of. Absolutely. So you mentioned the farm program and and, uh, a piece of what they're doing now, in addition to assessing animal welfare and environmental sustainability is HR practices. And that brings up something that's a very top of mind, at least for a lot of producers that I talk to. Uh, Most of them today, the the vast majority of people that they're hiring to, to join their workforce have little or no prior experience with large animals. When you think about that and the risks of, you know, having people that don't know what they're doing around an animal that may be nearly a ton (laughs) in body weight, um, are there ways we need to adapt how we onboard people, how we train people so that we can make sure employees at least understand how to handle cattle? Yeah, that's a great question. And we've had the same observations here in Wisconsin. So when I was a new assistant professor and extension specialist almost five years ago, I hadn't worked 
with the Wisconsin industry before. So I went around talking to dairy producers at an industry meeting and I asked them, first of all, what do you think animal welfare is so we can get on the same page? <laughs> and then what are your animal welfare challenges? How can I help with my research and extension program? And the most common request I got was, can you come to my farm and deliver a training about proper cow handling to my employees? And I was really taken aback because well, two reasons. First of all, it just wasn't practical. <laughs> so as a researcher, you know, we, we spend a lot of time running and designing studies, so it's not feasible for me to make all these personal calls to deliver trainings. But secondly, the principles around proper cow handling techniques are nothing new. They are well-established, decades well-established. So why are producers requesting further training? We have these beautifully produced videos that a lot of people watch as part of their training, but somehow these concepts aren't sticking and aren't getting put into practice. And I think part of it's what you, what you said, that the workforce is changing. So within the farm animal care program, actually, there is a new expectation as of 2020 that anybody who works on the farm with animal care responsibilities, whether they're a new employee or an experienced one, whether they're a hired hand or a family employee, they need to show annual continuing education around cow care practices, including proper animal handling. So that need that the farmers in my region expressed really stuck with me. So even though that wasn't an area of research I brought with me from my previous experience, I recognized that need and wanted to look for ways to innovate. And so actually I have two, I'm happy to say I have two projects funded now, one from the USDA and one from an internal grant from UW-Madison called the Research Forward Initiative to try to develop innovative, interactive learning experiences for people on dairy farms so that they can put into practice these cow handling skills. And so the one that I'm really excited about, we're calling it Moving Cows, M-O-O-V-I-N-G, a sort of pun. And it's, it's what's called a serious game or educational video game or like a flight simulator. So some of the inspiration came from, I went to a trade show and I saw that John Deere has a tractor simulator and it looks exactly like a flight simulator for pilots where you sit in the seat and you have the controls, but there's screens in front of and behind you. And that kind of technology obviously has led to great benefits in the aviation industry because you can't put a pilot, you can't put people's lives in somebody's hands. You can't put this hugely expensive piece of equipment in someone's hands until they have some practice. And I think it's similar when it comes to agricultural settings where a simulated environment is safe for the people and for the animals, but it lets you do what's called learning by doing. And this is also a trend we've seen in the classroom in recent years. I'm sure you've gone through this too, where the traditional model is the professor lectures, the students take notes, and that's very passive. And I think it's similar even when we're watching these really nice training videos where you see the concepts illustrated and we say, oh, that's good for visual learners. But it's hard for people to remember what they're learning when they have to go and actually do it unless they've had a chance to practice. And so the idea around moving cows is that you can practice these skills in a safe setting, learn things and see things you wouldn't be able to in real life, even in a hands-on training, because you can't stage or, or simulate some of those things without a virtual setting. So I'm super excited about that. We pilot tested the prototype this summer, and then our finished game should be released in early 2023. And I put quotes because we have a huge list of ideas of different 
scenarios where this could be really useful, but we had to limit the scope to just basic moving cows in the parlor or from their home pens to the parlor, just as the initial proof of concept. But we're very excited about that. And we're hoping that we can innovate this learning around cow handling that this could serve, for example, as continuing education. So if people need to fulfill the requirements of the farm program, they can have their staff play the game. You can generate a certificate at the end that could be printed out for your records. And so we're trying to address this need in a creative way. I love that. First of all, kudos to you for for going out and listening and then taking the initiative to address uh, an express need as opposed to only thinking about your interests. Um, but I, I'm curious if your psychology background, uh, I could see somebody watching a video and then actually going out around a, a large cow, you know, if you've only been around dogs, this is a large animal and just like a fear response, shutting off what you've learned. <laughs> yeah. That is actually a question. Um, when we hire undergraduate research assistants to help us, we ask them if they've ever been around a cow or other large animal. We don't require previous experience, but you're right. If somebody is afraid of large animals, it can be kind of paralyzing. And I think that cows pick up on that, um, not because they're predators, but because they're prey. And so I've had this experience with horses, too, where they sense your fear and they think, there must be something around here that's scary. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to act like it's a threat. And so it is really important to be calm and confident. And I agree with you. I think it will allow people to practice and develop some confidence before they go out there with the real animals who can be a little bit unpredictable sometimes. Well, I look forward to test driving that someday. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I am actually looking for collaborators, either you know from other academic institutions or people in the dairy industry who are interested in trying it out. It's not going to be a finished product. We are looking for more ideas on how we can improve it, for sure. All right. We'll have to talk. I like it. So let's dive into it. And another area of management that I know you've spent a lot of time on, and that's getting a lot of attention, and that's calf housing. So Talk me through the key dynamics around decisions on pairing or group housing calves versus sort of the traditional individual housing. Yeah, and I'm glad you asked me about this one, too. So both with the cow handling and with the calf housing, neither of these were actually research areas I worked on in my PhD or my postdocs. And so when I started as an extension specialist, I talked with dairy producers to get a sense of what they were interested in, because I think my role is not just to bring information to the industry and decide, oh, I'm the expert, I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm not a farmer. I don't live their daily experience. And that's why I think it's important that it is a two-way dialogue. So then my job is to listen to where are these knowledge gaps, what are the challenges, and then go back and think about how can I innovate and bring creative science-based solutions. So this is another example where when I arrived in Wisconsin, I got a lot of questions about, you know, what is this pair housing or group housing thing? I've heard a lot of buzz. I've heard there's a lot of research about it and people wanted to learn more. Um, and it's very interesting because I received a booklet <laughs> as a new faculty member when I visited our heifer rearing facility in Marshfield, and it's called the History of the Marshfield Agricultural Research Station. And there's a page in there about the 1960s, and one of the big innovations that came out of Marshfield was the calf hutch. So some extension specialists and engineers worked together to create individual calf hutches, which are outdoor housing enclosures for calves to house them individually. And this was because at that time, there was a massive crisis in calf health and mortality. And so the calf hutch was this much needed innovation that helped solve this emergency situation. 
But again, I think this is a really good example of where we have made so many strides in the intervening half century that we're no longer in that crisis situation. Kind of like in the beginning of the pandemic, we had to socially isolate. We all started working from home and we're not in the same level of emergency anymore where some of these risk mitigation practices are still valuable, but it doesn't mean that everybody has to follow that same level of strictness. I think that that's a pretty good analogy where we have made a lot of improvements in ventilation, calf nutrition, hygiene, etc. in all these other disciplines. So there is a history behind the individual housing. And another piece of history is from UW-Madison, there was um, a lab that worked on primates. So it's a little bit controversial now, in hindsight, about a century later, this was Harry Harlow's lab. And we know that monkeys are very social, and that if we raise them in isolation, it can lead to a lot of problems because they're a social species. And so there can be an analogy drawn to cattle. We know that they're a herd species. Everybody knows this. It's part of being a good herds person or cattle observer that you know that they like to do things together. They behave as a herd. And so this inspired some research in the last 20 years looking at, well, what happens if instead of rearing calves individually, which became the convention in our industry, so even today about three quarters of farms house their replacement heifer calves only individually. And these studies show that actually if you raise them in any kind of social group, whether this is with foster cows, with their own dam, with groups, with pairs, we do see this host of benefits. And it depends on that configuration. So they're not all equal in terms of, say, health risks. Um, But we see that there's improvements in calf growth. So measures like average daily gain, body weight at weaning, dry matter intake of starter, in all of the studies that have been done to date, and it's not just, you know, one or two studies, it's, it's a couple dozen now, there has not been a single study showing an advantage for individual housing. So if you raise calves in pairs or up to small groups of eight, that's really what this um, review paper focused on. And then I gathered together all the six or seven studies that have been done since this 2016 review by Dr. Joao Costa. There's not a single study that found an advantage of individual housing for these growth measures. So instead, about half the studies or a little bit more found better growth outcomes for pairs or small groups compared to the conventional or just equivalent outcomes. So sometimes it leads to a benefit, sometimes it doesn't, but it never is detrimental. And similarly, some other studies have found advantages for the calves' learning abilities, which sounds kind of neat, but okay, why should I care? Actually, we should really care because we have pretty high expectations of our dairy animals. So if you think about a calf growing into a mature lactating cow, she'll have several different housing environments, social groups, different feed types. Her feed comes from different places. Maybe it came from a bucket when she was eating starter, and then it came from a trough as a heifer. Now it comes from headlocks as a adult cow. Same thing for her water sources. And of course, to do her job as a lactating cow, she has to learn how to go into the parlor, probably on both sides or on a rotary or in an automatic milking system. So learning ability is really important. And a couple of studies have shown that calves raised in pairs or small groups have an advantage when it comes to learning, which makes a lot of sense if you think about, again, the evolutionary history or the natural history that cattle are a social species. So in the herd, they would learn from other animals about, okay, this is a good source of food. This is a good place to graze. So there's a lot of what we call social learning happening. And then also one study from the University of Minnesota done about two or three years ago found better public perception for pair group housing compared to individual. So this is a place where public perception and the animal welfare research on the calves themselves kind of converge and support that maybe this is a better alternative than what has become the standard. 
So as an extension specialist, I have compiled all this research and then done some in my own lab to try to bring the information to the industry and solve some of the practical concerns that producers still have around calf housing. I know there's a lot of still questions remaining about calf health, and this is where group size is a risk factor. So I think a lot of farms can probably manage pairs pretty successfully, but larger groups are not for everyone. Some farms do it very successfully. I also get a lot of questions about unwanted behaviors like cross-sucking. So that's where we've done some research in my lab and I have um, a pending grant application right now to try to solve this problem because I think that's actually one of the biggest barriers for producers. They don't want calves doing this behavior. Absolutely. That's fascinating. I, it's just, I'm curious real quick, do, do you have any um, hypotheses for why calves say grouped as a pair as opposed to being like right across the fence from each other and being able to watch each other at some level um, would grow differently. Yeah, I I think there's, I'm not sure. (laughs) So there's a few different hypotheses. And one of them is about what's called social facilitation. Just that if one calf does something the other wants to, I think producers call that healthy competition or like siblings, essentially, if I don't go get that food now, there might not be more later. (laughs) And so it encourages that behavior. It could be learning. So there's a phenomenon where research has have Researchers have observed that calves have less of what's called food neophobia, which means a fear of new. We've seen this probably if you've ever had a toddler, <laughs> that they get picky about certain things and that having a little bit of healthy peer pressure or, or social modeling means that they're less likely to be hesitant about trying new things. We have a hypothesis in my lab that at least in environments like ours in Wisconsin, where we have seasonal extremes, that in the winter, there could be a couple things going on. One is farmers have told us they see this social facilitation so that their calves, once they switch to pair housing, just seem more active. That one calf would get up to feed and the other would too, whereas when they had individual housing, the calves would kind of just stay inactive. And I think that ties to our second hypothesis, which is that when you have pair housing, they can keep each other warm. They're not wasting as much energy for maintenance. And so if there's one calf, she has to kind of huddle in her bedding to stay warm. If you have two, then they can expend more energy to get up and feed because they're not just trying to stay warm. I, I'm not sure, actually. I think that's a great question about what are the mechanisms? Why does this happen? And yeah, I'm not exactly sure. Another one actually could just be that when you pair house to try to solve the problem of cross-sucking, you need to feed a high plane of milk or milk replacer nutrition, so greater volume, um, and that possibly it's these enhanced benefits where you're feeding more, so they're going to grow better anyway. So maybe we just need to untangle those where by trial and error producers have found you can't sustain pair housing if you're not feeding enough. Yeah. Another incentive to do maybe a updated practice, if you will. Yeah, that's good. Okay. I've got some wrap up questions, kind of uh, bigger picture questions for you. Um, what's one thing that you strongly believe, which most people would disagree with? Yeah, I I think I'm going to take this as most people in the industry. And what I thought of is there's something called the information deficit model. So that's the fancy sort of um, social science term for it. And what I often hear in our industry is producers and other people recognizing that there is this disconnect between our traditional dairy farming practices and these evolving consumer expectations. And people always say, well, we just need to do a better job of sharing our story. And the logic there is that if we do more consumer education, I hear this phrase in a lot of ways, we need to tell the consumer more about what we're doing. We need to educate the consumer. We need to tell our story, but it's it's one direction. So just like with me as an extension specialist, I don't think my job is just to pass information one direction. I think it needs to be a two-way dialogue. The same is probably true when it comes to engaging with 
consumers where they don't just want to be educated and and hear all the minutia and all the details about our management practices. They just want to know that farmers share their values and that farmers truly care about their animals. And I think that this is what happened with Prop 2, or at least you know, thinking back about my own experience, how did I get fooled by the way this proposition was prevent- presented to the general public? It, it was this message about agriculture industries are profit motivated. They don't care about the animals. They just care about making money and using animals as a mean to an end. And I don't think that that's true, but the message gets kind of garbled. And I think it's really important that people in the industry be able to listen so that they can understand what are the consumer's values. And each person has a different set of values. They're, not all people want the exact same thing, but I think what consumers have in common is they want to make sure that they're not purchasing a product that's misaligned with their values, where they think the earth is being damaged, that animals are being harmed. So we don't have the answers yet. But one thing that we have seen from social science research on animal welfare is that the information deficit model doesn't hold true. We've tested that hypothesis and just educating people about what we do and why and giving them the rationale, it doesn't necessarily work to persuade them. And so it's more about aligning with the values. And so that's where I think much more research is needed. And it's a really disappointing message. People in the industry really want it to just be that simple. Like we just need to just craft our messaging, explain our position and consumers will get in line. And unfortunately it it doesn't seem to be the case. And so that's where there's more work that needs to be done. Yeah. Ultimately asking people to trust us if they're not sure if we share the same values is is not going to go very far, is it? Exactly. And I think um, Dr. Candace Crony from Purdue, she put it really well, which is that there might be this confusion around the term care. (laughs) Just like people get concerned about the word welfare, I think as an industry, when we talk about animal care, animal care is the input that leads to animal welfare, which is the outcome. But often the industry is talking about housing, management, husbandry, (laughs) handling. These are practices, and that's not what the consumer wants to hear. What they want to hear, you care about the animal. They're not just a means to an end, that you are caring for them and not just providing these care practices. And I think that that's just an example of where sometimes people are just speaking a different language, where there's this business jargon, there's industry jargon, and that's not what's going to resonate with people. I think that actually perpetuates the sort of profit-minded perception that we need to kind of get away from. We need to do what's called code switching. So when you're talking to people who aren't in the industry, you need to think from their perspective, what kind of message are they getting? That's excellent. Thank you. Okay. Three questions we ask every guest. Number one, what's your favorite dairy-related book or resource? So with great bias, <laughs> my favorite dairy-related resource is one that I developed. So we were talking about calf pairing, and what led to this was in having a lot of conversations with producers and giving some workshops, I wanted to put together the knowledge that I and others have gained about calf pairing so that it's both scientific and pragmatic and just put it together in a free resource. So my website, I'm going to give you two URLs that lead to the same place. So the official website is Animal Welfare dot cals dot whisk dot edu so animalwelfare.cals.wic.edu that can be kind of hard to remember so if you go to www.dairyanimalwelfare.org so dairyanimalwelfare.org both of them lead to my website and if you click on calf pairing it's a seven-part article series that I developed with a lot of collaborators, both within UW and outside who have experience, again, in all these different disciplines like calf nutrition, there's veterinarians, there's extension specialists, and we wanted to help producers and their other supporting advisors like their veterinarian or their 
nutritionist or their extension educator be able to evaluate, are they ready to make the shift to pair housing or do they maybe need to adjust some things first? What do they need to consider in terms of housing, group size, biosecurity practices, feeding, et cetera. So we put this all together in this guide called Two Heads Are Better Than One, a Starter Guide to Calf Pairing. So that's my favorite dairy resource. <laughs> I like it. Catchy title too. I love it. That's great. Okay. Favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? One of the books that I found really impactful was called Being Mortal by Dr. Atul Gawande. So he's a doctor and he wrote this about something that we often have a hard time talking about in our society and within our families, which is how do you want the end of your life to look? So sometimes even families really struggle to talk about who's gonna, who do I want to care for me as I get older? What do I want that sort of end of life time period or decision to look like? And I found it really powerful. My husband and I both encouraged our parents to read it while it's still early enough to try to have these tough conversations. So I would suggest everybody check it out because, you know, it's, it's hard to get old. <laughs> um, and, and I think it's important to try to think about it before you're really in the thick of that situation. Those decisions become really tough. So it's called Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. Thank you. Okay. Last, in your opinion, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are less successful? I like the way you phrase that because I think the key is professionals. And so one of my mentors is Dr. David Fraser from the University of British Columbia. So he's kind of one of the forefathers of our field of animal welfare science. And he's also my academic grandfather. So my PhD advisor was Cassandra Tucker and one of her PhD advisors was Dr. Fraser. So his framework for animal welfare, which I discussed earlier, is really influential, but also his idea that we should promote professionalism in the dairy industry, just like in any other profession. So I know sometimes farmers feel overwhelmed by paperwork. Nobody enters dairy farming or decides to stay in it for multiple generations because they like paperwork. And so I hear a lot of people grumbling that it's just become more and more work to have to do things like the farm program and to document what you're doing. But if we look at any other profession, including us as professors, we have to go through all sorts of compliance trainings from every direction, but it's so that we can make sure we are holding ourselves to a high standard. These are concepts that are really important, and we get this increased paperwork burden because we've learned more and more about what it takes to be an effective researcher, to have transparency, to have good um, animal research practices, to be good mentors to our students, to be good supervisors to our other employees. And I think that dairy farming is similar where customers, again, have a choice. So how do we maintain their trust if we treat it like a profession? Just like with vets and doctors, right? They have to have continuing education to show that they're up to date on the latest practices. And so I think that a successful farm looks far into the future and understands that their customer base is ever evolving and that we can't just always do things the same. We have to evolve along with that. So the farms that I think are the most successful are the ones seeking out the new latest knowledge who say, hey, what is going on at UW-Madison? How can we partner with research? Or even if they don't want to go that far, just to stay abreast of what's coming out that's based on research. So it's the farms who aren't just doing what their grandfather did, may have had really great ideas, but you know we've learned a lot since then, and who treat it as a profession and want to stay on top of what is the latest in the profession? How can we continue to always learn more and do better? Well stated. I'm with you there. All right. So Dr. Van Oss, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Dairy Podcast Show. Great conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. And please join us again next week and don't forget to hit subscribe. Subscribe.